You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. It was a joy to see a whole family from uh, husband, wife, all the way down to the little kiddos shoveling. One of them so small, uh, she was just holding on to the shovel as someone else was shoveling. But, you know, family that shovels together stays together. Now um, it's a blessing. It's a blessing to be uh, a wonderful part of such a great church family. If you have your Bible, and I certainly hope you do, I want to encourage that you turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Um, I think it's on page 1003, but here's the deal. If you are not very familiar with your Bible and you don't know how to find your way there, just take your Bible, hand it to the person next to you and say, hey, would you help me get to Romans 9? And I'm sure they'd be happy to do that. If you have a phone, you might want to look at how much gray hair the person next to you has if you're going to ask them to help you on the phone. Because I couldn't help you on most apps, but I could help you with the paper Bible. Romans 9, we're headed into uh, an interesting and difficult section here of God's Word. Let's hear some pages turning. I want to make sure that we can all be on this together, looking at God's Word. Bibles in laps, apps open, whatever that might be. Let's go ahead and read God's Word together. Romans 9.1. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises." The ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came the Christ, who is God over all, praised forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, as we walk into uh, a transition now in the word in Paul's letter, guide us and direct us. Lord, I'm praying for unity, as I know there is much disagreement in these next three chapters. Lord, I'm praying for illumination as to how we can take this and apply it to our lives and be transformed by it, and how we can be a witness to the world by it. And Lord, help us to see it clearly, and Lord, help me to preach it correctly and straight, all, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit. I thank you that we can open our Bibles this morning and read freely. Let us not squander such a great privilege. It's in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Paul has has clearly presented the gospel of Jesus Christ. He, we opened with the problem of sin and judgment, going all the way back to the beginning of the book in Romans 1, and he has been bringing us all the way through the problem of sin and the solution for sin and the gospel of Jesus Christ all the way up through chapter 8. And he has argued that, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. Found in no other work or person but the perfect work and the complete work of Jesus Christ alone. He's made that argument. He has proved his claim that the righteous shall live by faith. He said that all the way back in Romans 1.16. And now here we are. He's gone through this and he says, look, this is what we're talking about. This is the argument. This is why I wrote the letter. This is what's so important, the gospel. But he doesn't just show us that Jesus only saves. He goes on, as we've seen, and he shows us that we are also kept 
by Jesus. We're held by Jesus. He's, he's bringing us through. He says that nothing can separate God's children from the love of God. Nothing can separate us, his elect, his chosen, his children from God's love. But this truth causes Paul some serious anguish. He's thinking about his fellow Israelites, his flesh and blood, his people, and how they've rejected Jesus. And it pains him. He realized they're not, they're not God's children in the sense of salvation, which means they are separated from God's love. There, there's a problem here. And so, so obviously, not every single Jewish person, not every single Israelite was separated from God's love because many of them are in the church, Jews and Gentiles, at the point when he's writing this. However, many, 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 many more are in complete rejection. They're not enjoying God's love. And so now Romans 9, chapter 9 through chapter 11, addresses some really big questions that really hinge around this issue and, and, and these people. Right? So while Paul has gone through and he's shared in Romans 1 through 8, you know, the solution and, and all this stuff, the gospel and those things elicit conflict for the church, for the people of faith from outside the church, right? Everything in Romans 1 through 8, the world does not love. They don't like it. And, and so we have disagreement with the world. But now what we're going to talk about in Romans 9 through 11, we discover is the catalyst for difficulty from within the church, inside the church. This stuff becomes incredibly tough. There's a lot of different ways to look at it. There's a lot of different ideas here. We're not excluded from that. There's a lot of different opinions even in this room. So things like how God's sovereignty work in relation to our own salvation and how we understand God's choice versus our choice and God's will versus our will or how the Old Testament promises are being fulfilled in the New Testament and, and, and now or how they have been fulfilled and, and who fulfills those promises? Are they fulfilled in the nation of Israel? Are they fulfilled in Jesus? Are they fulfilled by the church? When does that happen and how? These are really big, complex questions. And you know what? The world around us who doesn't know Jesus doesn't give one iota to this situation. They don't care. This is not their issue. But this is a big issue in the church. This is the stuff that splits churches. This is the stuff that lots and lots of books have been written about. This is the stuff that breaks fellowship. This is the stuff that causes confusion and difficulty. And for good reason, we want to get it right, but we need to recognize what it is we're talking about here. Right? That's what we're looking at as we now head into this. And I think you should know that Romans 9 through 11, maybe more than anywhere else in the whole Bible, is where we can find... Um, or where we can expose maybe some of the, the perspectives that we have. And sometimes we don't even realize we have them. Many of us in the room, probably all of us in the room in one way or another, have had Bible teachers. They have a perspective that we're not aware of. They have a, 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 an approach to how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together or whatnot. And they teach us things. And we don't even realize what's, the, what's at the foundation of those things sometimes. 
And so as we move into this as a church, we're going to try to see if we can really get the perspective to the best of our ability. And there's probably going to be some things that I might say, I think it's like this, and you might think it's a little different. And I just want to encourage that we talk about those things, that we are humble about those things with one another. This is some areas here in this church where we can have some disagreements. And that's okay. And we may. But let's, let's pray that it's done with humility and gentleness. And, um, and I just want to let you know I'm going to do my dead-level best, the very best that I can do, to come to the best conclusions that I can here. And, and I'm going to preach from my convictions on what I think this is. But I am more than thrilled to have conversations if you want to dig deeper with me. Okay, so please keep me in your prayers as we move into these things. Um, and be kind to your brothers and sisters as we wade into this pool of Romans chapter 9 through 11. All right, so should we jump in? Is everybody ready? They're like, I don't know. That was such a big setup. I, I'm nervous now. You ought to know how I feel. Um, let's go ahead and take a look at, at, at this. It starts, it opens with Paul's agony over this entire matter. He's in agony, and it, it's a reality for him. It's a painful for him. It's something that was happening then, and I think... There's things we can see for us today. Let's go ahead and take a look. Romans 9, 1 through 3. Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit. What is this about? Verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. Um, I don't want to start off on a confused footing here. When he's talking about his brothers and sisters here, I know literally just a chapter ago, I was like, oh, these are the saved people in the church. That's not who these brothers and sisters are. He, he, he kind of qualifies it with the next statement. Here, he is not talking about saved people. He's talking about the nation of Israel. He's talking about a, a people group. Okay, that are united by race and culture. He's talking about the Israelites, of which he was one. Right? And so I think, in these next verses, 9 through 11, most, most scholars, but not all the scholars, and most preachers, but not all the preachers, would agree that at least in the sections of 9 through 11, when he says Israelite, that's who he's talking about. Um, and we'll see that as we go. So for the most part, he's saying, these are, the, these are my people, right? Not, not the saved church people, but like his people, right? His next verse, he says, these are Israelites, right? There's something in that. These are God's covenant people, of which he is one. Right? And it's interesting, there are times when, when Paul could use the word Israel in reference to, again, different places in the Bible in different contexts, he can, and he does, seem to use that term sometimes for Jews and Gentiles. Sometimes he uses that term in a little bit different way. But in this case, I think he's really talking about his kinsmen, his race, his flesh and blood. And we see here, when he thinks about the world around him and his people, he says he's sorrowful, and he's in anguish. He's, he's struggling over their spiritual status before God. And I think some of us can relate to that with some of our own flesh and blood. 
Right, he says this of them. He says, uh, he uses the words, accursed and cut off from Christ. He's actually referring to himself, talking about what he would trade. The word there is anathema. That's kind of a big, fancy, weird word, but it really means cursed, damned, and cut off in the most serious possible way. Anathema, accursed. And he's saying he wishes that he could be damned in that damned condition and that cursed condition for the benefit of the Israelite people. He's implying here that if he could trade for that, that they're in it. That in that moment, they're anathema. They're cursed. They're judged. He's saying, oh, if only we could make such a trade. For those of you who've been reading through your Bible, you probably go, wait, that sounds like Moses. I've read this before, when Moses pleads with God to forgive the Israelites because they were worshiping a golden calf. And Moses says this, now, he's talking to God, now if you would only forgive their sin, but if not, please erase me from the book you have written. It's Exodus 32, 32. He's saying, ah, go ahead and curse me for the sake of them. I mean, that's really a pretty amazing statement. Paul's saying that. Moses said that. I have some, some lost family, and I have some lost friends that I love a lot. I mean, I really love them. But I cannot even get myself to imagine that I would be able to say that prayer with God for them. I mean, I love them, but I guess I don't love enough. Because, I, 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 God, you know, yep, they're sinners, and, and they're bound for an eternity in hell, and that really pains me. And You know what? I'll just trade places with them. I cannot even think about myself ever making that prayer. I wish I could, but I just... Yes, I'm not, not that loving. I'm really sorry. I just can't do it. I can't get there. So I find it amazing that that's the, that's the agony and the pain that these guys are having. But here's the thing. It wouldn't work anyway. If I could say, for the sake of all of American lost people, I wish that I could go to hell so they could all be saved, it would not work. It could not work. Because here's the problem. I myself deserve to have hell unleashed on me. I'm anathema, right? And I, I don't have anything in me that makes it possible for me to save them. I've already had that happen for me. Jesus has already made that trade. He had this alien righteousness that I didn't have, and he said, I'll take your cursed condition, and I'll trade you, and you can have this righteousness. So now I don't have the ability in me to take Jesus' righteousness and trade it for everyone else's, because I'm already on borrowed righteousness. So even if Paul could do it, even if Moses could do it, it wouldn't work. And Paul knows that because I'm telling you from other places I've learned from Paul's work inspired by God, he gets it, but his heart is still broken, right? We don't have the ability, even if we were to throw ourselves in hell, to save somebody else from hell. But the good news is Jesus will do that for every single one who receives him. John 1, verses 11 through 13 says this, Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. So while I can't do it for him, Jesus will. If they'll have him, Jesus can do it. He wants to do it. He will do it. But still, even though Paul, I'm sure, knew this, 
He's still in sorrow over his people who did not receive Jesus. He's still in agony over it. And he appears here to be frustrated because of all the people, of any of the people on the planet in the history of the world, if there was ever a people who should see Jesus as the Messiah, who should get it, who should understand it, it should have been them. At this point, nobody was ever more privileged than these people. I mean, they had so much privilege that they're just wasting. Look at verses 4 and 5. This is what Paul says to them. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came the Christ, who is God over all and praise forever. Amen. No, no people. No people had a better perspective, a better understanding, a better relationship in this whole thing than to see the Messiah than the Israelites. And he starts out by calling them Israelites. Why not Jews? I mean, if you think about it, Paul refers to the Jews a lot, of which he is one, but he calls the people the Jews so much. And if you notice when you go through there, most of the time it's in a negative connotation because they're assaulting his work with the gospel. They're demanding circumcision. They're doing this. They're doing that. And he refers to them as the Jews. In fact, he so infrequently, if ever, refers to the people as Israelites that when he does, whoa, gets our attention. That's not his favorite term for a nation or a people. Why would he, why would he use the term Israelite? Why would he do that? I think what he's doing is he's going beyond the name of the people group. He's going beyond, this is what they were generally called in the day. You know, Jesus, king of the Jews, they were called the Jewish people. And he's saying, no, 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 I want you to remember what it means to be an Israelite. It goes all the way back to, to when God renamed Jacob in Genesis 33, 28. You need to remember what this is. Back then, God called Jacob Israel, which means struggles with or wrestles with or contends with God. That's a pretty fitting name here, isn't it? You need to remember, you're part of those people, people of the promises and the covenants, and you're these. He's saying, look, these are, these are a people, but it's more than just the name of the people. It's something bigger. You had a special relationship with God, which then he goes right into the fact that they are adopted. Then it belongs adoption. Now, some people would argue that might be forward, but I think, I think it's actually pointing back because all of these are pointing back. They were not orphans left as slaves to Pharaoh. You might remember Exodus 4.22 when, when Moses was told to go tell Pharaoh to let God's people go, and he was told to say, Israel is God's firstborn. They're not orphans. They're not orphans. They belong to God. I think Paul's saying, look, don't forget who you are. He reminds him of the glory of the Lord. Some of you have probably read through some of that, and you go, man, there's a lot of times when they see God's glory. Think about Exodus 40, 34, when they saw the glory of the Lord fill the tabernacle. 
These are the people who saw it. These are the people who carried that tabernacle across the desert. These are the people who were led by a a cloud and a pillar of fire. These are the people that saw parting of the Red Sea and saw the shoes not wear out and saw the miracles. This people group, he's saying, man, we have seen the glory of the Lord. Don't forget that. He says they were the recipients of the covenants. Covenants are like a serious agreement. When we have a wedding ceremony, the bride and the groom make a covenant. They make vows to one another. And many of these covenants are pretty one-sided. God says, I'm going to do this. But they were the recipients of remarkable covenants for this group of people. It goes all the way back to Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, where God told Abraham he would make Abraham a great nation. And he would be their God, and they would be his people, creating for himself a people. Right? And those particular people, he said all the way back in Genesis, would bless the whole earth. They had a plan. Paul said, don't forget who you are. They were the people who received the law, like Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, that whole thing. These are the people who, who, who got the word of God written by the hand of God to them. Now, they didn't have nice printed Bibles and scrolls, but they had those, you know, stone tablets with God's handwriting on them. God delivered his word and his law and his expectations and his instructions directly to this people. They were the ones that were charged to to take that out. They were entrusted with the temple work. Even at the moment Paul is writing, they were still doing the temple work. And they did this work in the tabernacle. Now think about that. They saw all the sacrifices. They saw all of God's important instructions and why everything had to be done just right. They saw why things had to die for the sake of their life. They saw that big curtain in the Holy of Holies. Some of them were there when it was ripped from top to bottom in two and Jesus died on the cross. They saw what God needed to dwell among his people when we don't have the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They've seen it day in and day out. Hopefully they were longing for more. It says they had the promises from God. I've got to be honest here. This one gets real tricky because there are some that really tie this to those covenants and say these are covenant promises, and there are some that say, no, this is the prophetic promises of things that are going to happen, and there are some that say numerous other things. I'm just going to say for the sake of what we're looking at here, I really believe these are the things that God said was going to be coming to them, how he was going to lead them, he was going to show them that aren't the big covenants. Because if they were the big covenants, this would be a different word. So they have the covenants and the promises. And they had all this. They have this instruction. We can read this stuff. We can read the promises. Pretty much all of us in here hold on to those promises too. So we're hoping. It says they were the children of the ancestors, right? They, they were the physical descendants. They heard the stories passed down. Right? Somebody had like, oh, this is the thing your mom had when we came across the desert. Now I'm giving it to you, and you're going to give it to your children, and you're going to give it to their children. I hear people in our community say, oh, I'm of... I'm of pioneer stock. And a lot of them, when they say that, are saying, I'm tied to what? 
the prominent religion here. It somehow makes it more of a big deal. These people were tied to the ancestors. Who were the ancestors? We're talking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes and Moses and David. We're talking about the ones we still read about and go, whoa. And they're like, yeah, that, that's my line. That's why they were really big into to genealogy, right? And if not for the Gentiles getting saved and making a really big deal about the faith of those individuals, it wouldn't seem like that big a deal. But it's a little odd when, when all these other people are going, wow, look at, these, look at these, the faith of these people. And those who have a direct lineage and know the stories and have known them their whole lives are like, eh, whatever. I mean, that's like, how do you miss this? They're your people. That's what he's like. Don't forget, this is our direct line. Don't you care about your physical ancestors and their stories? Or are you so complacent? And then he says this, and this, is, this one is really interesting. From them, by physical descent, Jesus came. Okay, he's meaning Jesus was literally of this group of people. Okay, he looked like this group of people. Now, I mean, Jesus is for everyone. Okay, so when, when a tribe in Africa kind of envisions their own culture onto Jesus and they have a, a Jesus that looks like a tribe in Africa and some, some people who live up in the Icelandic regions of whatever make Jesus look a little more like them and we sometimes in our shows and TV will make Jesus look a little bit more like us, I'm okay with that because Jesus is for all people. All tribes, tongues, nations, he can relate to all of us and we should be able to relate to him. But let's get real serious for a minute. When Jesus walked the earth in his earthly ministry, he looked like these people. He talked like these people. He ate the food of these people. He was walking the same roads of these people. Like if anybody should be able to relate to Jesus, should have been these people. He's of the same culture and language. Like that shouldn't have been real tough, right? These individuals, these Israelites that Paul is in agony over were so privileged. I mean, some of you are probably one day hoping to take a vacation to go walk the dirt that these people walked every day and took for granted. We spent tons of time and money to try to read the language they wrote in naturally. We try to understand the culture. These people didn't have to go through all those hurdles. They had so much privilege, and yet they did not faithfully follow Jesus. Now, don't, don't miss the irony here. Don't point a finger at them. Because how privileged are we? We have so many translations of the Bible we have tour guides that will take us through all this land, and we have archaeologists who will dig up all this stuff and explain it. We have so many study tools at our fingertips. We can carry around this stuff in our pocket. None of these people had a Bible of their own. They had to go to the synagogue and read the scrolls. We got all that right here. In fact, I have on my phone all those scrolls. I can look at what those scrolls look like from archaeology right here, never leaving the comfort of my office. And I can search it with search engines and helpful tools. We have resources. We have the opportunity to worship freely with no issues. We have book after book after book and teacher after teacher after teacher. Most of y'all go find other preachers too and you listen to them. We can do so much 
and we can do it back in time because we have recordings and we, we can look at stuff in other places. We can watch live streams. Look at the resources we have to know Jesus and to love Jesus and to follow Jesus and to be excited about Jesus. Are we not so privileged? Indeed. Many of us have multiple translations of their Bible, not even on your phone, printed Bibles. We have entire groups of people who do not have a Bible in their own language. We are so privileged, and yet often we are so apathetic to the privilege we have. We squander it. We waste it. We're tempted by so many other things when we have all this stuff right here available to us. I mean, how much are we missing out in our walk with Jesus? And our opportunity to know him and to hear from him and to be guided by him and to be loved by him and transformed by him. Yeah, I hope none of you are missing out on salvation, but let's be honest. Many of us could really love him more, couldn't we? Desire him more. Seek him more. We could. And nothing is stopping us. Nothing. Sometimes I think we almost have so many resources that it makes us more apathetic. Maybe we should go for a couple weeks without the internet, without some of these things, and see how we feel. We are privileged. We are privileged. We could learn a lot from this situation, couldn't we? But not all of us are apathetic to this. I mean, some of you are doing a fantastic job learning and growing and longing for the Lord and, and digging into devotionals and reading and studying. And, and praise the Lord, I'm so glad for that. And I hope you continue to do it and bring your brothers and sisters along in it. Keep it up. Keep up the good work. Contend for your faith, right? Keep doing that. And some of you are really broken, like Paul was broken over the lost people in your lives. I've had some of you in my office weeping. I had a phone call yesterday of somebody so sad over the state of another person. Weeping. And I have that from time to time. I think some of us can relate to Paul's agony, right? And, and I think that's what's so hard about this whole thing. If, you, if you've ever been just longing over a lost person in your life, and you go, wait a minute, they have all the information. It's been clearly presented to them. We can answer all the questions they have, but they just don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. That's maddening, isn't it? And I remember one time I was sharing the gospel with this guy. We had lots of time. We were meeting a lot. And we, we could very carefully, methodically work through God's word. And this guy agreed uh, that, that, that uh, there is a God. He agreed that the Bible is the revelation of God to us. He agreed that all have sinned. I mean, he agreed. Yeah, he believes the Bible. Well, I say he agreed, but he agreed the Bible says all have sinned. He agreed that the punishment for sin is death. He even agreed that Jesus was the Son of God who died on the cross for sins, was rose again on the third day and ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father. He even agreed that the Bible teaches that Jesus is, a, is interceding for us right now. So then I ask him after lots of conversation, are you ready to submit your Lord to Je are you submit your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord? And he goes, no, I don't need that because I'm okay, I'm a good person. What in the world? <laughs> I, 
I think it's good that our hearts are broken for people. I think we, we should take a lesson from Paul and let our hearts be broken for what breaks God's heart. But we also need to remember, like Paul remembers, we need to understand, like I know Paul understands, what is going on theologically. We need to see it. And Paul's going to get into this a lot more as we move into Romans chapter 9 through chapter 11. This is just a very small introduction, so I'm not going to dig into it too much right now. I don't have time, but we're going to go there. So what I'd like to do is at least give us a little bit of an introduction into where we're going to be going. So in Ephesians 4, Paul calls Christians to live not as the world, but to live differently. And he says this in Ephesians 4.18, talking about the world. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. They're ignorant because of the hardness of their hearts. The prophet Zechariah, he condemned the unfaithful and disobedient people, some of which were probably Jewish, but the people around them as well, saying, but they refused to pay attention, referring to God, and turned a stubborn shoulder. How many of you are married to somebody with a stubborn shoulder? They refused, and they turned to, they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder. They closed their ears so they could not hear. They made their hearts like rock so as not to obey the law or the words of the Lord or the words of the Lord of armies that had sent his spirit through their earlier prophets. These very people were rejecting God because they made their hearts like rock. They stuffed up their ears. Turn with me, if you will. I didn't get a page number. I apologize. But turn with me just a few pages back to John chapter 12. Help your neighbor if they're struggling to get there. John, in expressing some things that were happening in Jesus' day, quotes the prophet Isaiah. And I want you to hear how he quotes them. John chapter 12, verse 37 is where we're going to start. Somebody has a page number in the Pew Bible. Help somebody next to you out. John 12, verse 37. John, explaining what was going on in Jesus' day, um, says this. Even though he, referring to Jesus, even though Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, who said, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is why they were unable to believe. Because Isaiah also said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts and turn, and he would heal them. 41, if I included in the slides, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him, Jesus. You see what's going on here? You see the problem of lostness? John appealing to Isaiah, saying they're blind spiritually. They're deaf spiritually. Their hearts are stone spiritually. What a picture. What a picture of lostness. And then this running truth that goes all through the Bible like a thread. And you see it in all these people who are rejecting God, they have hard hearts. You see that over and over and over. That they are spiritually blind. 
They can't see the truth of Jesus. They're spiritually deaf, which means they can't recognize the voice of the shepherd and then follow him. Romans chapter 11, it says there was a partial hardening of the Israelites. We're going to get there. Specifically, though, verse 11 says some were saved and the rest were hardened. And this just grieves Paul. It grieves him. And it should grieve us. Do you know people with hard hearts? Maybe you remember what it was like when you had a hard heart. Do you know somebody who is spiritually deaf? Do you know somebody who is spiritually blind? This should cause us to weep. This is horribly sad, but it's not the end of the story. Because God promised in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, God said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. What a promise to hold on to. That's a promise. We're going to see this idea and this promise continue through chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11. Not everyone will be saved. The Bible makes that clear. But God does give people new hearts. God does save some. He does open eyes. He does open ears. To he who has eyes to see, let him see. To he or she who has ears, let her hear. God indeed saves people. What a hope. We're going to get real deep into some really big theology. (laughs) Some really serious stuff coming up. Some big doctrines. But for today, from these five verses, I just want us to really pray that something sinks in. Two things I want. Hope. I'm begging God that these two things would sink in for us for now. And we'll get off into all the other stuff soon, but for today. First is that we should be grieved by the lostness of our friends and family and co-workers and neighbors and classmates who don't know Jesus. We shouldn't be mad at them and angry and say, I don't want anything to do whatever. We should be broken and sad over their loss. If you love them so much that you can say, send me to hell and, and save them, more power to you. But we should love people who are lost and don't know Jesus. Okay, that should, that should breed in us and grow in us a desire to share the gospel with them. Looking for ways to say, I want to just keep telling you because maybe faith comes through hearing. I think I read that somewhere. And maybe if they hear the gospel, they could get saved and God would do such a work. So we shouldn't give up on them. You shouldn't cast them off. You shouldn't just blow them off. Let your heart move you. Just move you to love the lost. And to give everything you possibly can. It's my prayer that some of you will give up tremendous opportunities to go be missionaries around the world or right here to share the gospel as much as you possibly can. It's my prayer that you are moved to share with your neighbors and your co-workers. I just, I'm hoping that this really sinks in. The second thing I'm praying for is that we need to, we must remember that God saves. Okay, so that should make us really thankful for our salvation, really grateful for our salvation. That should compel us to worship the Lord and, and love the Lord and serve the Lord and, and be grateful that He saved us, that He took our 
heart of stone and made it a heart of flesh. He uncorked our corked up ears. And he took our hands over our own eyes and said, hey, look, I once was blind, but now I see. We should be grateful for the Lord for that. And we should pray for the salvation of the lost people around us. Pray for them. How hard is it to commit to pray for a few people every day that you know, that you love, that you would love to see praising Jesus? It brings him glory, and it might help us see God working in our own lives. So let's be praying for the lost. And on that note, let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you save. Lord, I apologize for myself for not having such a heart for the lost, not being in agony at times. Lord, I pray that this church has not had the greatest heart for the lost at times. So, Lord, I'm asking that you would fill that reality in our minds and in our hearts. You just fill us up with this, this overwhelming sense that there are lost people, that you are seeking to save the lost, as your word says, that we could join you in that work praying for the lost and sharing the gospel. Lord, let us be grateful that you've saved us. And Lord, as we head into these next sections of your word, give us eyes to see, give us humility to walk well together through it, to understand it. Lord, it's, it's hard. But for this week, Lord, let us just have the right mindset about lostness and salvation, about privilege, about apathy, Lord, and about our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.